Dun, dun, dun. Nothing like a little drama to kick off uh, the message today. My name is Joey. I'm the lead pastor here at Vertical Life Church. So for those of you that are guests with us today, I just want to say welcome. We have a philosophy here. We believe everyone matters to God. And that means you matter. So hopefully the time you spend with us today, that you sense that, you feel that. And uh, we just, uh, we thank you for uh, choosing to spend time with us. If you didn't stop by the VIP table on the way in, please make sure you stop by there on the way out. Fill out a connection card and pick up your uh, swag bag. It's uh, the gift that we have for you. Just saying thank you for uh, coming today. It has some information about our church, how you can get connected and what we're all about. Um, Just to kind of catch you up, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for almost a year now. Uh, We've been looking at chapter by chapter, verse by verse, about what God's Word is uh, for us through Matthew's account. We call this series Confessions of a Sinner because Matthew was that. He was a sinner. He was a tax collector. And in the time of Christ, tax collectors were one of the worst, uh, you know, jobs you could have. They're one of the most hated people out there because they were Jewish natives that were turning on their own countrymen to serve the Roman Empire that was in power and control of the land in that day. And so oftentimes they would rip off their brothers and sisters uh, in Israel, their, their fellow countrymen, just to become rich. And so they were despised and rejected from society. The religious leaders shunned them and cast judgment upon them. And one day, this tax collector, Matthew, he also goes by another name, Levi, has an encounter with someone whose name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus looks at him and says, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter where you've been, I want you. Come follow me. And Matthew drops everything, follows the Lord, his life has changed. And so this is the confession. The Gospel of Matthew is the confession of this sinner, what he saw and experienced as he followed Jesus Christ. Everything from his birth all the way through his death and resurrection. We've gotten to the place now in our series, Matthew chapter 24, which will be there today. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Uh, If you have your digital Bible on your phone, you can navigate there now. And while you're doing that, if you want to give us a shout out on Facebook, kind of check in, let people know that you're here. We'd appreciate that as a way to tell people what God is doing here at Vertical Life Church. But uh, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus begins to teach his disciples, and he says something that kind of shocks them a little bit, and it causes them to ask a question. So to kind of recap the foundation we set last week, last week we discussed that the reason why Jesus has given his disciples and us, the church, some insight on the end time events, that this day, this time that the world has waited for, the end of the world, the reason why he's given us insight into those events as the church of Jesus Christ is to encourage us to not only place our faith and trust in Jesus, but to also grow strong and steadfast in our faith as we wait for his return. It's not God's will that anyone would experience judgment. Peter tells us that God's will is not that anyone should perish, but that everyone would be saved. And God is waiting to let the end happen until everyone he knows will turn to Christ and place their faith and trust in him will do so. And so here we have kind of this this glimpse that Jesus is giving his disciples about the way the end is going to unfold in the book of Matthew chapter 24. Now, when you read the book of Revelation, which is what most people are familiar with as being the apocalypse book, that's the, the book of Revelation is the end times book. When you read that, you'll discover there's some scary things that happen. 
some horrific things that happen, some things that, that, that the disasters and calamities that befall all over the world that, that are unsettling. And these things are supposed to happen, what many have called the tribulation period or the end time period. And so the time these disciples, as they're asking Christ about what are the signs, how do we know the end is coming, as they're asking Jesus this question, the disciples refer to the end that they kind of become fearful because there are some things in that day and in that time that they're going to have to face. But I believe God's word reminds us that that day, the end, is not a dreadful day. It's not a dreadful day for those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, who trust in him. It's not a day of dread, but actually for us, it's a day of hope. Because it's not the end of something like the end of the world. It's not the end of something. It's actually the beginning of something. Something we've been waiting for. It's the end of the kingdom of Satan. And it's the beginning of the kingdom of God. And so as we study the end time events, there are some issues that arise when studying. Because a lot of people smarter than me, more educated than me, that have dedicated their lives to these things, they've kind of asked some very important questions, and so there's some issues that arise when studying these events. And much of the issues arise from actually the events themselves, the things that happen or are foretold to happen in the end times. These things happen on a global scale. And, and because there's some questions about these events and, and when they happen, how they happen, there are some different views that have arisen that to kind of explain the end time events. Now, we're going to get kind of college lectionary today. We're going to do some writing. Now, I have to apologize in advance. My handwriting looks like a toddler on a sugar high, and uh, for the sake of time, I could make it all nice and pretty, but my ADD won't allow it. So please don't judge me uh, as I write. But there are three main views about the end time events. There is the pre-trib view, the mid-trib view, and the post Trib view, all right? Pre, mid, and post. And they center, each view basically centers around one major issue, and that is the rapture of the church. It's a, it's a word that uh, was developed to explain an event that Scripture tells us about. And so we're not going to really look at what any particular theologian says about each view. What we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the most common view, which is the pre-trib view, which basically says the rapture happens before the end times, before the tribulation, and we're going to compare that to what scripture actually says. And we're going to look at um, what the Bible says is the end time event, uh, how those things are foretold and how they unfold, versus what the pre-tribulational view uh, also records. And so I'm going to kind of chart this pre-trib view so you have an idea when I say pre-trib what we're talking about. Okay, first off, the pre-tribulational view, it is a seven-year period of time. The tribulation is seven years. All right, that's how long the end times or the end time events are supposed to unfold. Seven years. Daniel talks about that. So in this seven years, there's some events that kind of, kind of go along this period of time. The very first thing the pre-tribulational view states is that the rapture of the church takes place. That's the very first thing. Rapture happens. And everything else unfolds. After the rapture happens, we have the signs or seals 
that take place in the book of Revelation, chapter 6. These things, that, as the, there's a scroll in heaven, John in his apocalyptic vision, he's taken into heaven, he sees the scroll, Jesus comes and starts to open the scroll, and every seal that's broken unleashes something on the earth. And so we have the rapture, and then we have the seals. Now halfway through, 3.5 years, halfway through we have the revelation of the Antichrist. This is the bad guy of the Bible. Right, we have Satan and we have the Antichrist. These are bad dudes. So halfway through, we have the revelation of Antichrist. During the last three and a half years, we have the period of time that God pours out his judgment on the earth. So we have the signs and the seals. We have the Antichrist. We have the judgment. And then we have the glorious day. We have the second coming of Jesus Christ. And also at the same time as the Battle of Armageddon. I don't know how to spell that word. So we'll just assume I spelled it right. So we have the Battle of Armageddon. Jesus lays waste to all of his enemies. He puts an end to Satan and the Antichrist. And then after Armageddon, we have a thousand-year kingdom reign of Jesus prior to the final judgment. Okay, so this kind of outlines the pre-tribulational rapture view. Rapture, seals, Antichrist, judgment, Armageddon, second coming, thousand-year reign, final judgment. This is what the pre-tribulational rapturist view as the sequence of events in the end times. Now, as we saw last week, how the end time events are going to unfold was even a question in the days of Christ. And much of the discussion today, again, is centered around the rapture of the church. You're going to hear me say that word a lot. So we're going to kind of define what this rapture is. If you don't have a church background, you're like, what is he talking about? All right, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. Paul the Apostle is writing to the church of Thessalonica, and here he describes an event that's supposed to take place sometime in the end times that many call the rapture. And here's what the word of the Lord records. It says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, first the believers who have died will rise from their graves, and then together with them we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So this is the event that is called the rapture. Uh, that when God's people, when God returns, God's people, those who have died, the graves are going to open and the bodies are going to rise to meet Christ in the air. Then those who are left still alive and breathing on the earth are going to rise. And my mind is kind of twisted sometimes. I don't know if you think like me, but I just wonder about all the Christians that have died that have been organ donors. Their bodies are supposed to be resurrected and to meet Christ in the air. I just imagine what's going to happen to the recipients of those organs, maybe, you know, in that time. Kind of, kind of freaky to think about, but uh, that's just the way my mind works. But uh, this is the rapture. This is an event that Paul tells us is going to happen when Christ returns. But we're not going to really dive into the, the, really the in and outs of the tree position, but we're simply going to look at what the Bible says. We're going to look at many passages of Scripture, mainly in Matthew 24, but we're going to look at what the Bible says is going to happen and to determine whether or not this is the timeline that is the official timeline of the Bible, because this is what most people believe is going to happen. But at the end of the day, here's my encouragement to you. I want you to study this on your own, Okay. You have a relationship with Christ as much as I do. Get into his word, study it, and determine for yourself 
which you're going to believe. Because I've taken a journey over many, many years studying this. Again, last week I had talked about how I took classes in college and I wrote term papers about this very issue, defending this position. I believed this. I was taught this. I argued for this time and time again. But as I've studied God's word, my heart and my mind have drifted away from this position. And so I'm going to present to you uh, what I believe the Bible says and leave it up to you to determine in your own life and heart what you believe. But we're going to start today with the authority that is for our faith and practice, the Word of God in Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gives us a timetable. Much like this, he gives us a timetable of what is going to happen when the end comes. He's going to tell us how things are going to go down. Now keep in mind, up until this point, up until this conversation with Christ, the disciples, they were Jewish men, grew up in a Jewish land, and so their understanding of prophecy and the Word of God was an Old Testament understanding. All they had at that point was the Old Testament. So they knew what the prophets predicted, namely Daniel, the prophet Daniel, in his book. Daniel, he has an encounter with an angel, many believe is Jesus before he was born, a thousand years or so before. And they believe Daniel has this vision of the apocalypse where he describes what the end is going to uh, entail. This angel d delivers him a similar message that he gives the John in the Revelation. Now, uh, the book of Daniel is in the Old Testament. Daniel is where we get the length of time that the tribulation occurs. It gives us key players, key events. And we see, as we're going to read through Matthew 24, we're going to see Jesus is actually teaching from Daniel and his teaching. He actually quotes many passages of Scripture from Daniel's apocalyptic vision. Now, something that's important to remember is that with every uh, vision of the apocalypse, every end days prophecy that we look at, that is just a glimpse into what is actually going to happen. Each account doesn't give us every detail. That's why you have to look at multiple accounts so you can kind of piece together the overall narrative of what is going to happen in the end. But I believe as we compare Daniel's timetable and Christ's timetable, I believe you're going to see some very similar characteristics that will lead you to believe what is actually going to happen in the last days. Now, in Matthew chapter 24, Matthew uh, starts off recording Jesus talking about a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, talking about the destruction of the temple. Jesus tells his disciples, look at the temple and all the buildings. All of this is going to be destroyed. Not even a stone is going to be left. That's recorded in Daniel, which actually took place in our history in the year 70 A.D. when Rome came in and sacked Jerusalem. So it's been fulfilled. And so Jesus makes this statement, and so it causes his disciples to ask Christ a question. How are we going to know that the end is here and that your kingdom is about to begin? What is it that's going to tell us that, that the time has come, that, that we're ready to go into your kingdom? And Jesus begins to unpack what they need to know, beginning in verse 4. Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. They'll deceive many. You will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world, but all this is only the first of the birth pains, with more to come. In other words, Jesus is telling them, look, some stuff's going to happen. Here's some things you're going to see, but there's going to be more than just this that occurs. 
more is going to happen than what I'm telling you at this point. It's going to be like childbirth. The closer it gets to the end, the more contractions you're going to experience and the more severe they're going to get as it gets time for my return. Verse 9, he says, Then you'll be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You'll be hated all over the world because you are my followers. He's talking to Christians. Verse 10, he says, Many will turn away from me, betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it. And then the end will come. Now, if you're looking for a good bedtime story to tell the kids, let me suggest not this one. And you're going to instill some PTSD probably in, in the kids telling them this story. But, but here, Jesus, he's describing the end and he tells us what the world's going to be like. And it's scary because I see much of our world in this passage of Scripture. What we can expect to see and experience prior to his return. And what we see right here, just in these few verses, we can see Jesus teaching directly from Daniel's vision. Because not only did Jesus talk about the destruction of the temple in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 24, but these signs that he gave us to watch for mirror exactly what Daniel summarized for us in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. Daniel 9, 26, Daniel says this. He says, the end will come with a flood. This means an outpour, indicating the swiftness and severity of these events. And then Daniel says, war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. So here Jesus is expounding on what Daniel has already told us. Jesus said these birth pains are going to come, and Daniel says the end is going to start, and it will come swiftly. Not only will there be war, but the devastation and fallout of war in congruence with what Jesus Christ has indicated to us. Now, in Daniel chapter 11 through 12, chapters 11 through 12, Daniel proceeds to go into detail about these wars and rumors of wars, some of the events that Jesus Christ briefly mentions in his teaching. More specifically, he talks about the conquest of the Antichrist and some of the, uh, the different uh, battles and um, political unrest that he creates in the world. And then Daniel says something in chapter 9, verse 27. Daniel talks about this Antichrist, and he says he's going to set up what he calls a sacrilegious object in the holy place of the temple of God. So he's going to set up some type of object that desecrates the temple halfway through the tribulation period. Again, this is in line with what we see here in the timetable. Halfway through the tribulation, Antichrist sets up this sacrilegious object. Now, how we know Jesus is teaching from Daniel is not because there's a similarity between the end time events and descriptions, but Jesus actually quotes that very fact from Daniel, Matthew 24, verse 15. He says, The day is coming... When you see Daniel, what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. So Jesus, again, is referring back to Daniel chapter 29. The Antichrist comes up, and we have the sacrilegious object. A big indicator that the end times are upon us. So when Jesus quotes Daniel here, Matthew, as he's recording Christ's message, kind of freaks out a little bit. If you read the, the text, it says there, it says, Reader, pay attention. Right, when you see things like that, you have to kind of stop and pause and be like, okay, what, what am I getting ready to hear? 
And because when this happens, when Daniel talks about this sacrilegious object, and now Jesus is talking about what's happening in the end of times, the message to the reader is, look, if you're in Israel, things are about to get bad. You are in danger. Wars and its miseries will be upon you. Persecution, poverty, hunger, starvation, disease due to uncleanness. Uh, Think about the Syrian refugees right now with all the wars and the displacement, all the things happening that you read about in the news. It's not uncommon or unlikely to see these very things happening with the, uh, the campaign of the Antichrist. We can see this in our world today. Matthew uh, 24, 16, as Jesus is talking about this sacrilegious object and, and the reader is now to pay attention to what's to come, the scripture continues. It says, Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. That's in Israel. A person out of the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began. And it will never be so great again. When that sacrilegious object is set up, what we've seen is nothing compared to what's about to happen from the Antichrist. And right here, as Jesus is giving this teaching, he quotes Daniel directly again from Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Daniel says, Then there will be a time of anguish greater than any since nations first came into existence. So think about the Holocaust. Think about all of the genocide that we've seen in Darfur and Cambodia and all the... the uh, the onslaught in Tiananmen Square and the different things we've seen across the world. Here Jesus says, nothing's going to compare to what you've seen before. This will be unlike any other time in history. And just by comparing both Daniel and Jesus together, it's obvious that Jesus is quoting directly from this passage of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, about the end of days. And this is important because God is not going to contradict himself. He's not going to tell us one thing in the Old Testament and then come around and tell us something new or different, contradicting himself in the New Testament. So by seeing the commonality between Daniel and Matthew, we're seeing that there's a congruence and a commonality about what they're both speaking about. Because essentially, they are talking about the very same thing, the very same events. Matthew 24, 22, Jesus says about this time of persecution. He says, in fact... Unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive. But the good news is, it will be shortened for the sake of who? God's people. That time will be shortened. This is important. Here Jesus is saying there's a fixed period of time that the Antichrist is going to be allowed to work, that God's going to permit this campaign of persecution. And as we see from Daniel, he limits that period of time to seven years. So that time is limited, so God's people will not be destroyed. This is an important clue about the placement of the rapture. Because obviously, when these things are happening, people are going to wonder if they're going to be rescued. Here the church is experiencing persecution in the Middle East, and that's what they're crying out for. Somebody come rescue us. And so when we see this begin to happen across the world, we're going to ask the very same thing. We're going to wonder, where is Jesus? And Jesus anticipates this question. He continues in verse 23. He says, If anyone tells you, look, there is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it, 
For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I've warned you about this ahead of time. So if someone tells you, look, the Messiah is out in the desert, don't bother to go and look. Or look, he's hiding here, don't believe it. For as the lightning flashes in the east and shines to the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. Just as the gathering of vultures shows there's a carcass nearby, so these signs indicate that the end is near. In other words, don't be fooled by false claims. You will know. It will be plain as day that this is the time you're in. You won't have to wonder. It's going to be obvious. The headlines of the news will be right off the pages of the Bible. And so again, according to Daniel, the tribulational period is seven years in length. According to this pre-tribulational rapture model, this timeline that's the most commonly held view, the Antichrist isn't revealed until halfway through this tribulational period. So the question that I have to ask is that if the rapture is supposed to happen to start everything off, if it's the very first thing to occur, as the pre-trib position holds, then why would we need to know and be watching for the signs? The signs involving the Antichrist. Because if the church isn't going to be here, then we wouldn't have to worry about it. According to the pre-trib position, the rapture of the church takes the church out before all of these events. But here Jesus is telling his followers, watch out for this stuff. Ready your heart. Be ready. Doesn't make sense if the Antichrist is revealed halfway through the tribulation and the rapture happens first. According to the pre-trib position, the rapture of the church must take place First, they consider that the catalyst for all of the end time events, according to their view of the end times. It's what starts everything else. It's what begins the countdown. So we have to ask this question because the Bible is our authority, not a theologian, not a school of thought, not a denomination. The Bible is our authority. What does the Bible say is the catalyst to the events of uh, the end times? Well, Daniel tells us in Daniel chapter 9, Verse 27. In Daniel 9, 27, it says, The ruler will make a treaty with people for a period of one set of seven. But after half this time, that's uh, seven years and now 3.5 years, half the time, he'll put an end to the sacrifices and the offerings, and as a climax to his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. So again, we know it's one set of seven. It's a seven-year period of time. He sets up the sacrilegious object halfway through. And then he, after that, he unleashes even more persecution on the earth. And now Daniel says that he continues to do this until the fate is decreed for this defiler. We know he meets his fate at the second coming at the Battle of Armageddon when Jesus wipes him out. Right? So that's at the end, the second coming. Battle of Armageddon. So we have those indicators. But what does Daniel say in verse 27 that starts off the tribulation? Is it the rapture? What's it say? Look at the beginning. It says, the ruler will do what? Make a treaty. He makes a treaty. For seven years. That's what he does. That's the beginning. 
That's the indicator. That's what starts the countdown, because once this treaty is made, then 3.5 years later, he sets up the sacrilegious object. This is what the Bible says. Now, it's the treaty that the Antichrist makes with nations begins the seven-year countdown, not the rapture. So this makes a conflict between the traditional rapture view, the pre-trib or the common rapture view, versus the Bible. So now we have to figure out where does the rapture go if it's not at the very beginning. So the biblical timetable right now we have in alignment. We have the treaty. We still have signs and seals. We have 3.5 uh, period of time, judgment, Armageddon, and then the final judgment after the thousand-year reign of Christ. We're, we're okay there. But Jesus continues his timetable. He continues to unpack this end-time event in Matthew 24, 29. And he uses a word that indicates a sequence of events. He gives us a clue that this is the order in which these things are going to happen. In verse 29, he says, immediately. So right after everything I just told you, after the signs, the birth pains, the sacrilegious object, immediately after the anguish in those days, he says, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. So now here in our signs, we have some astrological events. And this is a direct quote from the prophet Joel. Jesus is, is including other prophet or prophetic words in this timetable, indicating that what happens next after all the persecution and the Antichrist becomes the signs in the sky. Verse 30, again, using another uh, indicator for time, he says, Then at last, after these astrological events, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens. There will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So what he's saying is after the persecution, after the sacrilegious object, after you see the signs in the sky, look up, because here I come. It's happening, the second coming. And this is basically Jesus summarizing Daniel's vision all throughout Matthew 24. Is Jesus taking what Daniel has already told us and putting it in his own words. Now, if we look at what Jesus has revealed in Matthew 24, what Daniel has revealed to us in Daniel chapters 9 through 12, combining that with the prophet Joel's signs in the sky, and we compare it to the revelation of the end, the apocalyptic book, the book of the revelation, John's uh, vision of the end times which is a highly detailed account of the end, when we compare it to what Jesus and Daniel have already revealed to us, we're going to see some similarities. And we can see much of what Jesus has already described to us in Revelation chapter 6, when John sees the angel, or Christ, open the seven-sealed book. In Revelation chapter 6, we see the very first seal. Seal number one is the white horse, in the, in the rider of the white horse. This is the king that makes war. This is a king unleashed to make war and, and to begin a military campaign. Well, that's just what Jesus and Daniel told us about. The Antichrist, he makes war. He kicks off the tribulation period. The second seal is the red horse, and the rider of the red horse is given power to take peace from the earth. Jesus and Daniel both spoke about wars and rumors of war and persecution and unrest. Seal number three is a black horse. It's given power to 
devastate the world's economy. Jesus and Daniel both told us that there'd be calamities, famine, anguish, fallout of war. People would be displaced from their homes and many, many more calamities, which would have a detrimental effect on the world's economies. Seal number four is the pale horse. The rider is given the power of death, death by sword, by sickness, by pestilence. Jesus and Daniel just talked about pestilence, natural disasters among many of the wars being waged on the earth. Seal number five, we see something a little different. We see an altar of souls opened up in heaven. And the altar of souls contained those that were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation. Jesus talks about many of us enduring severe persecution by the Antichrist and others during the end times. And finally, in seal number six, there's a great earthquake, and then the sun becomes dark as black cloth, and the moon became as red as blood. Matthew 24, Jesus mentions earthquakes, and right from the prophet Joel, he says, this very thing will be astrological signs in the heavens. So when you combine the, the description of the birth pains of Jesus in Matthew 24, the visions of Daniel in chapters 9 through 12, the prophecy of Joel, now to the seals of Revelation chapter 6, we can easily and logically assume that these are all talking about the very same events. It's the very same thing, just from a different and more detailed perspective. We can assume this because the events themselves just aren't similar, but they are 100% agreement with the timetable that each of them have laid out for us in the Bible. The seals of Revelation start out with the revelation of the Antichrist and end with the signs in the sky, and so in agreement with Christ's timetable in Matthew 24. So this creates another problem with the pre-tribulational view, the, the traditional or most common view of the end times, because according to this timeline, what's supposed to happen is that the rapture happens first, then the seals of the book of Revelation, chapter 6, occur. Then you have the revelation of or the, the revealing of Antichrist. And so according to their timeline, before those seals are open, the rapture has to happen. But if it's what Jesus and Daniel are talking about, then we're here during that period of time. Now, the argument is that from the pre-tribulationalists, many of them say, well, in Daniel's or John's account of Revelation, before he's given this vision, he's taken out of body, he has an out-of-body experience and taken up into heaven. That's like being raptured, and so that might be a metaphor for rapture. The problem with that argument is that in the book of Revelation, where it's metaphorical, it then goes and explains itself. The very first couple of chapters, there are seven stars and seven golden candlesticks that Jesus reveals to John, and he describes what those stars and candlesticks are as an example. So nowhere in the text does the book of Revelation include a pre-tribulational rapture. And, uh, and so that it, you really have to look at just what the Bible says. So the Bible says the seals are opened, they reveal the birth pains, and then you see the signs that alert us to the coming of the Lord. The very same thing Jesus instructs us in Matthew 24. So a couple of questions we have to answer if we're going to hold to the pre-tribulational rapture view is, one, why would we need to know the signs if we're not going to be here? And then why would Jesus say that those days have to be shortened for the sake of God's people, for his followers? Why would those days have to be shortened if we're not going to be here for those end-time events? And I believe the answer is logically and simply because we're going to be here. We will be on the earth. Now, the, the Luke, Luke, 
when his gospel, he takes a different approach than the other three because Luke wasn't around when Jesus was doing his ministry. He actually uh, does an investigative journalistic approach to the gospels, interviews everybody, and then determines uh, the facts and puts them down in a letter for a dignitary that was interested in the life of Christ. In Luke, in Luke chapter 21, 27, and 28, as he's uh, quoting or summarizing Jesus' message here in Matthew 24, he, sees, he says something particularly interesting right after Christ reveals that he's coming down on the clouds of heaven. Luke 21, 27, and 28, Jesus says this. He says, Everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with great power and glory. So when all these things begin to happen, stand and look up, for your salvation is near. The salvation of his people is connected to his return. Now, for centuries, the church has been looking for the rapture. But at the start of Matthew 24, we see that Jesus' disciples weren't looking for the rapture. They were looking for his return and the coming kingdom. Their focus wasn't on rapture. Their focus was on something very different. So Jesus is telling his followers here in Luke that these seals that are broken, these signs that unfold, they are what's going to indicate that what you've been hoping for, waiting for, watching for is imminent. And be watching. Because when they come, when they come upon the earth, that means salvation is near. Though the events are severe, persecution is going to come. There will be a light at the end of the tunnel. There will be your salvation. And Jesus even encourages them in Matthew 24, 13. He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Well, how can we endure to the end if we're not here to endure it? It's also important to understand that Jesus says that these signs that mean that our salvation is near. That's a particularly important day. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, Paul, who wrote most of the, the, the verses and the, the letters that many see the rapture recorded, he writes in Ephesians 4.30, he says, don't bring sorrow on God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he's identified you as his own, guaranteeing you will be saved on the day of redemption. What is the day of redemption? It's the day Jesus returns to set up his kingdom. What he just said, look up, your salvation is near. It's the day of salvation. The day that we are given our new bodies that are free from sin and death and suffering. Where we receive the fulfillment of all he's promised. The day that Paul says in Romans is the day we finally get to experience our full adoption as sons and daughters of the most high God. That is the day we are looking and waiting for and hoping for. The day of his return. So when you compare Daniel, Jesus, and John together, and they're teaching about the end times, the timeline of events, it creates some very serious issues for the pre-trib position. So the question is, is could there be another timeline that fills in the gap to give us insight onto Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 24 and how it affects the pre-trib position, whether or not the rapture is before the tribulation or not. And the answer is absolutely yes. But we're going to look at that next week. So you'll have to come back. But what I want you to take away from this today is we're beginning to set the foundation. We're looking at scripture as it applies to the timeline and the events. I want you to consider this. The question is, is where is your faith? 
God doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone going to hell. That's not his plan. His plan is that everyone lives in relationship with him. When he comes back, he wants to welcome everyone with open arms. So where's your faith? If he were to come back today, would you be ready? There's an old song that says, I wish we'd all been ready. Would you be excited to meet him or would you be ashamed? Have you been living a life that grieves the Holy Spirit or a life that reveals a passionate heart to know the Lord and honor him with your life? We're going to close with one final parable that Jesus gives in Matthew 24, verses 38 through 51. In verse 38, Jesus says, In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties, weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That's the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in the field, and one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. So you too must keep watch, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. And understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. A faithful, sensible servant is one whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. But I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But if the servant is evil and thinks my master won't be back for a while, begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk, the master will return unannounced and unexpected. He will cut the servant to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a mindset when it comes to church and church people that when we come to church, we have to dress a certain way. We have to speak a certain way. We can't say those words when we're in the church. We can't wear that outfit when we're in the church. We can't let anyone know we went and saw that movie when we're in the church. We can't let anybody know we drank that drink while we're in the church. But see, Jesus is not as concerned as how you live on Sunday as he is with how you live on Monday. Because Monday reveals where your heart is. And according to Jesus, it's those who truly love him who are preparing not just themselves, but also helping others get ready for his return. See, faith is more than lip service. And this is so hard for us because it's so easy to get caught up in ourselves and in our sin. But faith is more than lip service. You are either living it out for the love of God or you're just living to appease him enough so he's not mad at you. Those who have genuine faith are going to live their lives as if he's coming today, repenting of their sin, living on mission for his honor and for his glory. Those who don't have genuine faith are just going to try to appease him when they think he's watching, when they think he's not around. And when they don't think he's around and when they don't think he's watching, they're going to continue to live their life according to their sinful desires. So where is your faith? Is your faith leading your life or is your sin? 
Do you look forward to getting to know God more and to experience God more? Or are you in a hurry to get away from him so you can do what you actually just want to do? My challenge for all of us today is to truly search your heart and take some time for the next few moments as we bow our heads for prayer to be honest with yourself before God. If you haven't been living for the Lord, if you haven't been preparing for his return, just confess that to him and give him your heart. Make a commitment to start investing in your relationship with God to make Jesus a priority, to put him first as you start preparing for his return today. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes in this place. If you're here today and you've never begun a relationship with God, you don't know that your sins are forgiven. You don't know that when he comes back, you'll be one of the ones that will be welcomed. I invite you here today to Make a decision today to trust in Jesus. Paul in the book of Romans said, if you confess Jesus as your Lord, you believe that he was raised from the dead, you will be saved. By making Jesus Lord, you're saying, God, I'm going all in with your son. I'm gonna follow him. For his, I'm gonna live for his honor and for his glory. And you can begin that relationship today by making a decision to trust in Jesus and confess him as your Lord. And we can do that through a simple prayer. You can pray right here with me. If that's you here today, just pray this prayer with me with all the faith you can muster in your heart. Say, Father in heaven, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of my sin. I choose today to live for Jesus. He is Lord now and forever. Take me, Lord. I'm yours in Jesus' name. And that prayer of faith can change your life. If you prayed that prayer with me, we're not going to embarrass you today. I just ask that before you leave today, you grab a connection card and just mark that you accepted Christ as your Savior today. You trusted in him and put that and drop that off at the, the VIP table. That just encourages us to know that people have made decisions to trust the Lord through our ministry. But now for the next few moments, we're just going to let the music play. If you'd like to come down to the front and bow in this first row of seats, just making this an old-fashioned altar, or you'd like to get together with someone and pray, or, or just pray where you are, I'm gonna invite you now just to take some time and analyze your heart, your life, your motives, your decisions, and give your life to Jesus. Give the things over to Jesus that have been in the way. The things you've been putting first before God Repent of that today and let God reign in your heart in that place. God, I pray for our church now as we go into a time of prayer, God, that your spirit would be present and empower, and God, that you would reign in all of our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, let's pray.